Good morning, church. Thank you for the introduction, Brother Van. As you may have heard, my name is Nick Atkins, and I have been all also serving uh, Calvary uh, for almost four years now, serving in the youth and the Sunday school and also our small group ministry as well. However, according to Facebook, it's been nearly 10 years since I've actually been standing in a pulpit, and that may ask a few questions. It may prompt you to ask, you know, why haven't you preached? Like, where have you been? So there's many reasons to that, uh, but one big one is that I take bringing the Word of God very seriously. James 3.1 says that not many should become teachers, or they will be judged as they will be judged with greater strictness. So I think there's actually two ways that teachers are judged with a greater strictness. First off, people are going to judge you. There is a reason why public speaking is constantly labeled as someone's greatest fear. Dale always used to tell a story about how a young guy like myself came up to preach on a Sunday morning and he just flat out fainted. I'm going to try really hard not to have that happen uh, here today. Uh, actually, uh, Pat came up to me after the morning service and said, I'm really glad you didn't faint because I didn't want to do any mouth-to-mouth. Me too, Pat. Me too. So you can kind of tell that any person who speaks in public is opening themselves up to be judged by the people they are speaking to, and that can be a very scary situation. And trust me, you're all pretty scary. Some of you are a little more scarier than others. That was a joke. In all seriousness, though, you all have been extremely welcoming to my family and I, and I really do appreciate the grace that you've afforded to me and to others to use this pulpit to learn and to grow. My second reason is God will judge you. Now, see, you all may be scary, but the beginning of the wisdom, but the beginning of wisdom does not begin with the fear of man. It begins with the fear of the Lord. See, when anyone aims to bring God's word to God's people, effectively they are saying, thus saith the Lord. And they better be sure that the Lord actually says what they are saying. If they are not faithful to do this, at best they are ignorant, and at worst they are leading sheep astray, which Jesus says is like putting a stone around their neck and throwing them into the ocean. So see, I take God's word very seriously, enough to know that teaching his word brings about a greater judgment. And I take that judgment seriously enough to not rush into it before the Lord's appointed time. With that being said, though, it is my honor, and I am very excited to bring the word of the Lord to you this morning. So for today, our text is James 1 through 8 and verse 12, which can be found on your pew Bibles on page 1011. Before we get there, though, you may be wondering, why James? Nick, why did you choose James? So I spent a lot of time thinking about a text to preach from. So I decided that whenever I have the opportunity to preach, at least in this pulpit, we'll be going through James. Uh, there's a few reasons for this. First, it simply just makes it easier for me to know what to preach on next. But secondly, it also allows you to know what to expect as well. So whenever you see me up here, you know we're going to be hitting up James once again. But lastly, and most importantly... We at Calvary, we preach the word because it is the only authority that we have for knowing who Jesus is. So why did I end up choosing the book of James specifically? Well, I think we hear a lot from Paul. Paul wrote over half the New Testament. Naturally speaking, we do hear a lot from Paul, but we don't hear a lot from James. 
So Paul, will, Paul, he'll come and bring us this mind-blowing theology and application. Chapters upon chapters of theology and application. But James, he is much more in your face. James says, you know this stuff, so now go out and do it. Don't just sit there, do something. See, James is particularly good at encouraging those in faith to be active in their faith. But he is also very good at bringing to light those who may think they are alive but are actually spiritually dead. No movement in your faith means you have no movement or no faith at all. See, James' desire for you is also my desire. My desire and prayer for all of you, all of us, is that your faith in Christ would urge you to move, to love him and to serve others. And likewise, my desire is that if you are spiritually dead, that the marvelous light of the gospel will stir and awaken your soul. Now let's actually begin digging into James here. James 1, 1 through 8, verse 12. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let's go to the Lord Lord in prayer. Father, we are... We are weak people. We are weak people who are in need of your grace, Lord. We need your understanding. We cannot live on bread alone, Father. We need your words. To whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Father, likewise, I am also weak, but I ask that you would work in spite of my weakness. So as we examine and look to this text this morning, Father, please feed us with the truth of your word. It's in Christ's name that we trust. Amen. All right. Who's James? Well, some of you may know he was the brother of Jesus, but we see a little more than that in verse 1. He was also a servant of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, he wasn't actually always that way. And frankly, when your brother comes to you and says, hey, I'm God, you should probably be a little worried. But he actually did not stay that way. Yes, he did first deny Christ as the Messiah, but... He didn't say it that way. He later believed. He was actually one of the very first to see the resurrected Christ. And later on, he became a key leader in the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church at this time of the writing of this epistle was under an intense persecution from the Jewish authorities. So much so that it ultimately ended in James being stoned to death in AD 62. James and the church at this time was well acquainted with suffering. See, we see James hinting at that suffering just a little bit in verse 1, where you'll see some pretty interesting language. See, he writes this letter to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. What is the dispersion? This dispersion he's referring to is when in the Old Testament, first Assyria came in and brutally wiped out the northern kingdom, which consisted of 10 of the 12 tribes. And then after that, secondly, Babylon came in and carried away into slavery the southern tribes of both Benjamin and Judah. So why did he bring up that? Why did he bring up this dispersion? Why not just say, to the 12 tribes, or to my Jewish brothers in Christ, or or something along those lines? My thought would be, the reason for this would be, because it would remind them 
of the intense suffering of their particular people in that particular past, and that James' current audience was also dispersed, that Christian Jews had to flee Jerusalem for their own persecution, from their own persecution. See, this is James. He's winding up to throw his first punch, and he lets that punch loose in verses 2 through 8. Before we get to verses 2 through 8, though, I think one of the most helpful ways to understand this text that I found in my preparation was to put these verses into four categories. So if you're taking notes, these are the four categories you should write down. These four things are, first, we see God's call. Secondly, we see God's purpose. Third, we see God's condition. And lastly, we see God's promise. So first, God's call. We see this in verse 2, where it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. See, God calls us, what he calls us to, is that when trials come, that we would count it as all joy. Two things to note. First, James does not say if trials come, but when trials come. If you are living this life, trials will come at some point or another. It will come guaranteed. No one can escape any trial. Secondly, while James particularly may have had the dispersion in mind, this does apply to all trials. When he says trials of various kinds, he's saying all trials. Any little trial or big trial that may come, he is talking about all trials here to take joy in them. So these, trial, tr- these trials are not just little trials. They can also be big, life-altering trials. Maybe it was when you were praying that daddy wouldn't come home drunk again, or maybe you're dealing with some sort of unending pain or disability, or maybe it's about being worried or anxious about your work or your finances, or maybe for me, for me personally, that my biggest trial that I went through that was the most life-altering thing for me was when I lost, when I lost my mom when I, when I was three. I was just a few years older than my little baby boy. See, I was wondering, I prayed, I said, God, why would you take my mom away from me? God, would you send her back? See, these trials, they press into and ask the hardest and darkest questions on our souls. Questions like, is God there? Did God, did you abandon me? Why did you allow this to happen? But yet God, through James, he calls us to rejoice. Now, some of you may be wondering and saying, well, James, I mean, where's your bedside manner here? Didn't, didn't, you know, you go to preacher school and and learn some bedside manner or didn't the Holy Spirit teach you anything about bedside matter? But see, telling someone to rejoice in their suffering, it it does seem to be illogical or irrational. But is it, is it really illogical? Is it really irrational? Is it really? See, I would argue that our regular responses to trials would seem much more illogical. So when trials come, we could be tempted, you know, to grab a drink or maybe even drink in excess, maybe eat some food or take a whole slew of drugs just to take the edge off. We maybe worry so much that we burn an ulcer into our stomachs. Or maybe we choose to fight. We get angry, we lash out at the people around us, and frankly, that doesn't help. It just brings on more betrayal. Or maybe instead of fight, we choose to flight. Or maybe with that, we choose to run. Uh, We shut down our feelings, we ignore. Or maybe we just bottle it all up until it all lets loose, and that just creates another trial for us. Maybe we're tempted just to end everything. But for Christians, it doesn't mean we don't grieve or weep. To rejoice does not mean that we don't grieve, we don't reap. See, we're not deluded. I think sometimes, actually, we may act like we're deluded. How many times is it that someone comes up to you and says, hey, how are you doing? And you say, I'm great. And you're really not. See, I think the shortest verse in the Bible, we see that Jesus wept. And with that, we see the pinnacle of man weeping. Romans 9 tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice, but also to weep with those who weep. So what's different then about our trials as Christians? See, I think in our midst, in our grief, 
in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our trials. No, we don't grieve the same as the world does. James doesn't say to go out and sin, but he does say to count it all as joy. See, we count our trials as joy, and doing so is not illogical or irrational, but it definitely is radical. It's radical to count our trials as joy because it goes against our fundamental nature to do so. See, we see this radical joy, though, throughout all of Scripture. We see Job, who was stricken with ailments, where he saw his entire family die in front of him. But at the end, he says, blessed be his name. The apostles suffered intense persecution, and they departed from the presence of the council, saying, rejoice, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. We see Jesus in Gethsemane, where he was sweating tears. Sorry, he was sweating blood. But at the end, he said, your will be done. See, with God, we can have this radical joy, especially when we begin to see his purposes behind the suffering. We can be sure that if God calls us to count our trials as joy, you can bet he has a purpose behind them. So in God's purpose for us, we see that in verses 3 and 4. It says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, the reason James gives us for the testing of your faith is to produce steadfastness. And God's purpose for you is to produce steadfastness. What is steadfastness? What exactly is God going to produce? See, God's purpose is to produce strength in your faith. So that when bad things happen, you'll stand strong. You'll stand steadfast in your faith. Being shaken with suffering is meant to make your faith unshakable. See, faith is like a muscle. If you don't work out your muscle, it atrophies, it weakens. In order to produce strong faith, we must be tested and it must be exercised. So it may be kind of hard for you to believe a little bit, but I actually do work out. Uh, Once or twice a week I try to work out, and usually I'm in the seminary gym lifting my two-and-a-half-pound weights. And usually while I'm doing that, I can look next door and see the CrossFit room. And these CrossFit guys, they make the hardest moves look easy. Like moves that would like snap my bone in half, like my arm in half or something like that. They make it all look incredibly easy. But see, it's easy because they do these hard moves over and over and over again. And they keep on doing them. And when they keep on doing it, it makes their muscles stronger. They're able to keep on doing it. It builds up endurance so that the hard moves are no longer hard. I think our faith and building up our faith works in the same way. How, then, is our faith exercised? Well, I think it is tested. I think it is stressed to the limit. Our faith muscles are stretched and torn so that greater faith can be built on top of it. Faith that can withstand trials, resulting in a greater capacity to stand fast. We see this in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. This is what it says. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. See, we see this extreme suffering that Paul went through. He was overly burdened. He was afflicted so much that he feared for life itself. But pay attention to the part that says, but that was too. That part right there shows us that there was a purpose for the trial. And that trial was so that he would not rely on himself, but on God. It was so that they would not rely on their own strength, their own intellect, their own money, that they would rely on anything, so they would not rely on anything that could come from them. 
They wouldn't look to drinking or drugs or relationships or anything else to get them through the trial, but to ultimately rely on God and on him alone. So that even if death came, even if they feared for life itself, even if they received the sentence of death, their faith would not falter because they knew that God raises the dead. They believed and had faith that God would do what he has promised. We see that God tested Paul's faith. He stretched it and he worked it to its core. But that very test was designed to actually strengthen Paul. That Paul's faith would not be placed in himself, but ultimately in God who raises the dead. What does this look like for us? It means that when trials come, when something we value is taken away, something that we may rely on is taken away, his purpose is that our faith will grow deeper and stronger and find that him and him alone is the only thing we need. For me, for me it was losing my mom. And this year, I've actually lived longer than my mom had. And that is a scary thought. But see, at a young age, the Lord was helping to teach me to depend on him, that he is more satisfying than anything else in heaven or earth. He taught me that I should not rely on people, that I should not rely on myself, but that I must rely on him. And only in him I could find rest. See, for unbelievers, this rest The rest is not available to them. It can't be true for them. See, they will spend their time chasing after the things of the world, relationships, pleasure, whatever it may be, but all that will eventually turn to ash. For believers, though, for believers, this means that if we believe in Christ, when he said, we believe that when he said we cannot be his disciple if we do not also hate our mothers and brothers and fathers and sisters. No, he didn't literally mean hate. But when Christ said that, he meant is that what we desire, what we should desire, is him above all those people, that our desire would be ultimately for him, that our joy is to be found first in him, that he should be our primary joy, and all of life's blessings that he gives us are to be secondary joys. See, when we have this mindset, when we have this mindset that Christ is better, that trials are a gracious and loving act of God to make our faith strong, then whatever may come our way, we can echo with David in the Psalms where he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? But there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. The flesh of my mom, the flesh of my little boy, the flesh of my own spouse, my own flesh, my own heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and you are my portion forever. Beloved, don't you see? I hope you see. That the testing of your faith is ultimately meant to give you more of the very thing you most desire. It's meant to give you more of Jesus. But God has his condition to all that. God's condition is that you would put your faith to work. If you turn your attention to verses 5 through 8, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. So brothers and sisters, if you lack wisdom, know that the wisdom here in this context is talking about, could be talking about those who have already wisdom, but also may lack wisdom. They may lack knowledge of God. See, when trials or suffering come, it is the time that we all need to look the more into the truth about God's character and who he is and know that he is good, that he is holy, that vengeance is of the Lord, that all sin will be either met with his wrath upon that particular person who sinned against you or that will be met with the wrath upon his son. We need to remember his promises, that all things work to the good of those who love him, that a day will be coming that he will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more suffering. If we lack these truths, 
if we doubt these truths, if we struggle in believing them, then James says that we must work out our muscles of faith and ask God for wisdom. The wisdom, though, isn't so much about knowing. This wisdom isn't about knowing. It's about being wise, the state of being wise. So you can mentally know these things, but if you do not live like you believe them, then merely knowing them will not get you anywhere when trials come. So you can talk the talk, but if you don't walk the walk, and then all you're doing is just blabbering. All this knowing of this wisdom that you have uh, with no action behind it, that wisdom won't get you anywhere when trials do come. So if we lack wisdom, we should ask in faith. See, suffering at times can reveal no faith at all. See, there's people uh, who, who may come to church, maybe regular churchgoers, but when suffering comes, they say, hey, you know, this Christian thing is supposed to be helping me have a good life and, you know, living the prosperity life. But when trials come, they leave. And see, these are like the seeds that Jesus, talk about, that Jesus talks about in Luke 8.13. These seeds are the ones who fall on the rock, and those are people who hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. Beloved, what a sad state to be in. But see, suffering can also reveal a weak faith that needs to be strengthened. In the same way, we see that when trials come to those who are true in the faith, they lean into the church, they lean into Christ, they see that they need more of him, and they ask for it in faith. Regardless, whatever faith you have, you must ask God for wisdom in what you do believe, and then trust that he will show you what you need to believe in order to stand steadfast amidst the trial. So in this text, we see this man who doubts, and he's tossed to and fro, and he is double-minded. So who is this man? So first, I don't think this man is someone like the father in Matthew 18. So this is a a story uh, from from the Gospel of Matthew where... This father, he brings his son to Jesus, and this son is demon-possessed. See, this son, he foams at the mouth, he grinds at his teeth, he has seizures. He actually tries to kill himself by throwing himself into the fire, or he tries to drown himself by throwing himself into the water. And he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, help me if you can. And Christ responds saying, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And the father responds saying, I believe, I believe now, help my unbelief. How many of you have prayed that prayer? See, now did Christ then turn away from the Father because his belief wasn't perfect? No, he turned and he drove that demon out of his son. And the same goes for you. If you ask in faith, ask in belief, and ask God to help you in your unbelief, he will help you. See, it doesn't matter what you've said or done. If you come to faith in him, he is gracious and merciful. If you come to him, he will give wisdom generously to all without any reproach. So who is this text then talking about? Well, I think this text is talking about those who are fake, those who are hypocritical. See, they may seem like they're somewhat regular worshipers, but when hardships come, they fall away from the fellowship and accountability of the church. When trials come, we actually must fight to lean into our church family. See, they are are ones who are there to encourage us and strengthen us and remind us of the wisdom and the promises of God, to walk with us and keep us standing steadfast in our faith. Likewise, beloved, we must be a church who is willing to lean into those who are suffering. It may be uncomfortable, but we must weep with those who weep. This is actually all a part of what our life groups, our small groups at our church aim to do. But see, if we try to live this life alone, we can't be surprised that we have more doubt than we have of joy. These people also may be someone who may proclaim Christ, but gets sucked in the pleasures of this world when suffering comes. 
It may be someone who reads their Bible, but has no intention of actually doing what it says. It may be someone who knows that Satan is our enemy, seeking to devour whom he can, but yet he readily believes the lies of the devil. It may seem like he may be someone who says that they listen to Christ, but more so listens to the world. They believe the pop psychology of the day and goes to that friend who gives them the advice they want to hear rather than going to that godly friend who will point you to Jesus. This is what a hypocrite is. But beloved, flee from these things. Flee from these things that will cause you doubt and angst and uneasiness and run to Jesus and take hold of your joy in him. See, God's condition is that you would work out your faith and ask for wisdom in faith. So don't doubt or live a double life and know that he will give you what you ask for with no reproach. Not only does God promise to give wisdom to those who ask, but he has also promised us so much more. And we see that promise in verse 12. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. See, we could spend a very long time going over biblical reasons why we should count trials as joy. But probably the most impactful reason we have is actually in verse 12. That if we remain steadfast under trial, and if we love God, then we will receive the crown of life. So to be clear here, we are not saved by loving God and standing steadfast under trial. We are saved by grace alone, by Christ dying on the cross for our sins when we deserved wrath, rather than grace. But standing steadfast under trial, not forsaking the truth when hard times come, planting our feet on Christ as the solid rock, that is all not what saves us. But what it does do is that it points us to the fact that our faith is not dead, that our faith is very much so alive. Likewise, when our flesh and Satan and the world come calling with all the vain pleasures of this world, we choose to love Christ more than those things. Or when earthly things are taken away and we choose to love Christ more than those things, those are all signs that our faith is not dead and that we can take hold of the promise that we will receive the crown of life. What does it mean then to take hold of this promise? It means that with the scriptures, from the scriptures, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. It means that we can write over every trial that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And it means we can say with the apostle, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the joy, with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It means we can obey Christ when he commands us to rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. See, beloved, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel for both believers and unbelievers. See, if you don't believe, the light at the end is the burning fire of God's wrath. So I plead with you, if you do not believe in Christ, do not delay. Believe in Christ for your forgiveness of your sins and repent of them and turn to him. But if you do believe, if you do believe, we know that though we walk through the valley of shadow and death, we will fear no evil. We shall fear no evil because we are running through this life and at the end of it all, we will be running into the marvelous light of Jesus. So as we run, we love Christ above literally everything else. And because of that, we don't grieve or weep as people without any hope. We do have hope. We have hope because Christ has been risen from the dead. Death no longer has its sting. So when sorrows and trials and suffering come, we can weep and we can moan. We can cry out, how long, O God, how long? But yet underneath it all, There is a steadfast faith that counts it all as 
as joy.